I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Dementia Matters. Our guest today is renowned psychiatrist, social anthropologist, author, and expert on the subject of caregiving, Dr. Arthur Kleinman. Dr. Kleinman has taught at Harvard for over 40 years, but his medical training and expertise could not have prepared him for the decade he spent as the primary caregiver for his wife, Joan, as she suffered from early onset Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Kleinman's recent book is titled, The Soul of Care, the moral education of a husband and doctor. And in it, he delivers an inspiring story of his life in medicine, his marriage to Joan, and the practical, emotional, and moral aspects of caregiving. Dr. Kleinman, it's an honor to have you on Dementia Matters. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Look forward to it. Now, in the beginning of your book, you describe your childhood experiences and medical training as training for being a caregiver, both the good and bad experiences. Do you believe that caregiving and empathy can be taught? Yes. Now, I, I don't, you'll notice in the book, I don't use the term empathy very much. Um, my own feeling is that everyone, it's part of human nature for there to be compassion for others who need help uh, and need. Some people are much better at showing that and acting on it others less so. But I don't think that um, we're teaching anyone to be empathetic. What we're doing is we're increasing the skills of people to move the their empathic uh, um, uh, interest forward into actual practices of care. So you can be empathetic, but do nothing, just observe. Or you can be empathetic and have learned how to help people. And it's the learning how to help people that certainly can be taught. And indeed, that's one of the points of the book that um, I had become, quote unquote, an expert in, uh, in caregiving over um, my career as a researcher and a uh, cl- clinician. Uh, and yet, it was only in my care for my wife that I evolved as a personality, as a, as a, as an individual, emotionally and morally, uh, to be to really take on fully the role of a caregiver. So I had all the empathic impulses, if you will, but uh, they hadn't really been drawn out of me. Uh, uh, I hadn't been stimulated, as it were, to develop them to the degree I did when I took care of my late wife, Joan. And as someone who was at least intellectually prepared for caregiving, I'm sure there were experiences that you had in providing care to, to Joan that really caught you off guard. And I'm wondering if you could share about some of those experiences, the things that if you had known ahead of time, you might have done differently? Well, this is a a long story. It takes up a fair amount of time in the book. But I had come, uh, I had 
uh, come out of an era. We had married in an era, Joan and I, which were in a pretty traditional marriage in which uh, Joan took care of the home and also was a collaborator of mine in research. And I did most of my work in teaching and research and did relatively little uh, from child development to taking care of our household. So the first thing that hit me in taking care of Joan was I had to become uh, uh, more liberated and more uh, involved in the in the in the home uh, itself, and and things I should have done much earlier, but didn't didn't have to because Joan did them, from paying the bills, to washing the clothes, cleaning the house, uh, to making all the appointments that people who are at home know they have to make for plumbers and electricians, et cetera. Uh, all of that was new to me uh, in my uh, 50s and 60s. Shouldn't have been, uh, but it was. And so the first thing was taking on uh, an understanding of the domestic space and my responsibility for it. And uh, it may sound odd to your uh, uh, listeners uh, because uh, the world has changed so much. But for people who grew up in the 1940s and 50s, as I did, and as Joan did, there was a different set of expectations. And then from there, I think I discovered that so much of caregiving is about the actual physical acts of doing care. Uh, so that care is more verb than it is anything else you're doing, you're helping someone to ambulate, you're bathing them, helping them to take a bath, you're helping them to eat by learning how to help feed them. You're doing all those physical things from supporting them as they stand up from a chair to helping them lie down at night. Um, and in Joan's case, as things progressed to uh, dressing her and doing all the activities of daily living, for her, or with her. And I think that um, uh, as a physician, um, uh, I simply had not appreciated how significant those physical acts are. The physicality, the viscerality of helping someone into and out of a bath. The, uh, all those dimensions of care begin with a set of physical acts. And I think that that was what shocked me at first, the physicality of it. I should have been uh, completely aware of this. I had seen others do it. I had written about it. But doing it myself changed matters. Joan was a very elegant uh, woman, a, uh, a woman who was quite private in the way she did things. She, had a, she engendered tremendous respect and she had a, uh, a sense of um, her, her autonomy as a person and in control of her space. When I ended up uh, having to select her clothes for her, put her clothes on, take them off, organize the day for ourselves, even as things worsened in her Alzheimer's disease, to um, not just talk to her, but have to come to understand if my talking made her more agitated or if there was a way I could make her less agitated. So that 
my whole focus became on these physical activities, this emotional support, and what I would call the moral solidarity. That is the doing for someone so they know that you're there to assist them, that, that crucial moral tie. All those things, I think, impressed me greatly as a family caregiver, much more than they had when I was uh, doing professional care as a psychiatrist or um, studying uh, uh, care as a researcher. And I think that um, part and parcel of this is the, is the importance for clinicians of understanding what family care is about. Because most care is given in the family. And the family is where patients are coming from and where they will return. And we have in our society a, um, an extraordinary myth of hyper-individuality and of ultimate autonomy, which breaks down entirely when family members are taking care of someone with a, uh, as disabling a problem as Alzheimer's, not just Alzheimer's, stroke, any of the neurodegenerative diseases, cancer, serious heart disease, et cetera, et cetera. They all make that demand on the family to enter a space that is, in the, in the past, was a space you expected the person themselves to make decisions, do the actions, but now they can't. And so that space becomes an interpersonal space in which the family member is the key caregiver. I just hadn't really understood that until I did it. In your book, you talk about caring as an elemental thing, like rubbing a sore shoulder. And you, I, one of the quotes that I, I really appreciated is you do it because it is there to do. And I think that speaks to the physicality that you describe um, in caregiving. But you also talk about having family and or friends there to help you. And I wonder, how do you tell your family and friends you need help from them? You know, that's a great question. And I'm not so sure that I did as good a job as I should have on that count. I was late in getting my adult children, who are wonderful and who had deep love for me and for my wife. I was late in acknowledging to them that I was at my limits and that I really needed their assistance. And when I asked for it, they were right there to help me. I, lots of my friends uh, were astonished after they read the book to see just how unaware they were of what I was doing in the caregiving. They knew that I was doing certain things, but they had no understanding of how many of the things uh, and how basic those things were. And a number of them, after reading the book, said, gee, I, I, you know, if you had told me about that, if I had known that earlier, I could have helped in some way. So I'm not sure that I, I elicited all the help that I needed. I, I, I want to go back to the point you made of that the care is there to do. Um, that's the moral dimension of care. I always felt that central to my marriage was the understanding that um, uh, Joan would take care of me when I was sick, and I would take care of her when she was sick and needed it. And she actually took care of me for the first 36 years of our marriage in being the principal person responsible for our home life. And I took care of her for 10 years 
So it seemed to me that when the issue came up of having to do these things, you could no longer do them, that I wasn't so much deciding to do care as doing it. You just do it because, as you put it, it's there to do. Um, and I think that that is misunderstood by many people today, that we, we use a cognitive framing to say that you make the decision to care. I don't know that you really are in the context of a, of a long family or friendship relationship making a conscious decision. It may be an unconscious decision. You're sort of thrown into it and you, it's got to be done. Uh, you know, the person has got to have a bath and someone's got to do it and you're there and you end up um, doing it. And then over time, you begin to figure out ways that you can be assisted. So I also was late in coming to the understanding of how crucial a home health aid was. I had the resources, uh, financial resources, to, to uh, afford a home health aid. And uh, that home health aid was, was key to my being able to continue working since we both needed uh, my financial uh, contribution, but also it was important for my own identity and my who I was. I've been a professor for a very long time. Uh, I benefited enormously from a home health aid, but I came to it very late again. Joan was already four or five years into her dementia before it became absolutely clear to me I had to have someone in the house help. Joan's dementia was an unusual form of Alzheimer's. About 5% of Alzheimer's disease begin in the occipital lobes of the brain, which are responsible for the interpretation of what we see so that she became blind at the same time that she developed dementia. Just walking around the house was no longer possible for her. She had to be guided and protected from banging into things or falling down stairs, etc. So when I, by the time I came to that full recognition, I lucked out in the sense that I was able to find very quickly a home health aide who was, who was wonderful. But it might have been the opposite. And many of my uh, friends and contacts have had the opposite. They've had a dickens of a time trying to find a home health aide who really could help them and who wasn't, um, uh, who was trustworthy. Several of my friends had home health aides who stole from them, who had all the competencies to take care of Joan and who uh, could, could hit it off with. Uh, with, with Joan. So um, that was very critical in my, in my uh, uh, family care. But as I'm trying to indicate, um, I came to it quite late. And it was just by, you know, great good fortune that I found someone who really hit it off with Joan, uh, was highly responsible, trustworthy, and very effective. The same thing with um, other aspects of the of the uh, care that we did, that I did for my wife. You know, I do uh, global health. I work in China and Asia. My wife is a, was a China scholar. I had to make decisions about whether we could travel uh, or not. And um, again, they weren't really decisions. We sort of fell into them. There was a moment in which my 
Chinese friends uh, uh, in China indicated, well, you know, you should come to China. If anything, it'll be easier for you because we can help provide the care for Joan. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. One of the uh, one of the benefits of being in China with them, with Joan uh, and my colleagues, for about a month or six weeks near the end of her uh, Alzheimer's, was the wonderful care they they provided and the respite they gave me. That is, I was able to focus on my res on the research I did with them, on our collaborative research, on my uh, on, on what it is that kept me going. And that, that's the point I want to make. Uh, if the if reader if if listeners take anything from uh, this interview we have, and readers take anything from the soul of care, the book I've written about this experience, they should take away that the key issue in caregiving is how do you endure? How does the person who requires care, the care recipient, the patient, how does that person endure? And how does the um, care provider or providers uh, endure? And I think that if we were less caught up in a sort of Pollyanna-ish, Hollywood-esque uh, vision of, of resilience, where somehow we automatically expand our capacity and are able to, like a rubber band, be stretched and then come back to who we were before, if we, if, if, if we follow that sort of resilience idea, it's completely erroneous in my experience. No, none of us is like a rubber band who can be stretched. Everyone is, um, is injured, is, is broken, is wounded uh, by what they have to do as a family carer. Nonetheless, there are also positive things uh, that come out of it, the sense of purpose and meaning in life. And there are joys along the way because the fact that you're doing care or that the person requires care doesn't obliterate the happiness and the rest of life. It simply channels it in different directions and changes its frequency and its intensity. And I what, I, what I found was that um, enduring was the key. How do you endure? And I think constantly in caregiving for people with serious disability. And, and uh, Alzheimer's produ produces serious disability. You feel yourself up against the wall and you wonder, can I get over this wall? Because the disease is progressing downhill. And by the time you adapt to one level and you feel, okay, I'm able to do this, the person has already sunk to an another level that, you, that looks to you like something you can't do. In my instance, for example, when Joan became an incontinent of urine and, and, and feces, I didn't think I could continue uh, with this. And Joan said to me, she was present enough to say to me, you can do this, Arthur. Keep, keep going, Arthur. And because I loved her and because her presence brought out my presence, I kept going. And in that instance, that's what helped me endure. In other instances, it was the, um, the home health aid, my family input, uh, the sensitivity of my colleagues at work who realized uh, some of the pressure that I was under. All those things helped me endure. But I, 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 I emphasize the word endurance 
because it isn't a matter of simply um, finding in yourself some magically some capacity to do these things. All of these things that I've talked about, the activities of daily living, helping someone out of a bed, bathing them, feeding them, all of these over time make, uh, make it produce a burden for you, a psychological burden, a, phys a real physical burden from lifting someone, etc., and a emotional burden as you begin to wonder, can I continue? You also touch on the professional side of caregiving, especially when you talk about a home health aide. So in your book, you explain that illness is experienced by the person and the disease is the pathology. You then go on to state that the caregiver is a key component of illness and should be incorporated into the evaluation and treatment of illness. How can we do this in healthcare, knowing the changes that both clinicians and patients are, are seeing? Yes, right. This, this is a perfect question for me. So I put an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal explaining this. We basically have two facets to our healthcare system. One is an acute care, disease pathology-oriented facet in hospitals and emergency rooms. And the other is a chronic care, uh, disability-oriented, rehabilitation-oriented engagement with people's experience of symptoms and of their effects, uh, uh, the consequences of those symptoms on their lives. That system, that latter system of uh, uh, managing people's illness experiences, that part of our healthcare system in particular does very poorly. And uh, it's almost as if it's an afterthought. And yet, given the amount of chronic illness and the number of health catastrophes that happen, it's a very big part of health care. Now, how do we, um, in that illness uh, uh, experience uh, facet of the healthcare system, it, re it requires a different set of uh, skills from doctors and nurses. Here, we're not asking them to uh, be in an emergency mode, like they're in an emergency room and someone has had a heart attack and they have to get ready with a defibrillator to act. Here, we're asking them to take care of people whose symptoms may be pain, uh, shortness of breath, uh, difficulty walking. And these interfere in significant ways with their those people's abilities to work and to live uh, their lives. And being sensitive to that, knowing how to assist with that, knowing where to get some uh, professional help from becomes an important part of what doctors uh, have to do. So for example, in chronic illness, you find frequently people who become isolated, immobilized, uh, immobilized by their uh, problems, like a post-stroke patient who can't walk, um, then isolated because they can't get out, can't get around, and then depressed because they're isolated. Someone's got to be there, a geriatric psychiatrist, geriatrician, a primary care doc who can actually make a diagnosis of depression and treat someone for depression and understand that that treatment is going to be over a long period of time 
and is going to involve not just the medication, but all kinds of psychosocial support. Uh, and I think that that requires a different set of ideas and a different sensibility on behalf of the practitioner. And I found that some fields are very good at this and some fields are not. So that um, uh, geriat geriatricians, geriatric psychiatrists, primary care docs, and the nurses who work with them are pretty good at doing these things. Uh, in, in contrast, I found that the neurologists who um, were seeing Joan were really ignorant of the things they needed to do and unskilled in them because they were unschooled in them. I don't want to, in a sense, critique a whole field, but maybe I should, that neurology as a field is a wonderful field in making a diagnosis like early onset Alzheimer's and using the few medications that can uh, uh, slow, slightly slow its course. But it's a field that doesn't train people in aftercare, in being concerned with what's happening to the person with the diagnosis as they try to live their life and how families are affected and in turn come to play a role in the care. I, I found my neurological colleagues who I deeply respected on the diagnostic side and did, did it, they diagnosed Joan probably a year before most places would have been able to do that. They were hopeless basically when it came to uh, the caregiving. And so um, here we have to think about reorienting entire fields. Uh, and why do we need to do that? Because neurologists are deeply involved with um, Alzheimer's disease and with uh, other dementias and with uh, post-stroke and with all the neurodegenerative diseases. They need to be active in this. There are only so many geriatricians and so many geriatric psychiatrists who can be called on to, to assist. The neurologist really is the key person here, and they must be much better educated and more attentive and spend more time on the management of the illness experience. In their absence, in their, in their failure to do that, and it really is a professional failure in my, in my mind, in their failure to do that, things become much more difficult for patients and family carers. Can you speak to context in, in your book, the context of understanding people when, when we do provide care? And you also speak to the community needing to understand both people with dementia and their caregivers. And so to end our interview, I'd really like for you to, to share with our audience why it is so important for the community to welcome people with dementia and their caregivers and to prevent the isolation that you talk about. Well, let's start with a, a broader understanding even than that. Uh, that is very important, but I want to be very broad here. Oh, absolutely. Uh, caregiving, I've come to realize, is the glue that holds societies to together. Most of care around the world is given by women. They're uncompensated and unappreciated for it. Um, they raise the children. They do most of the family caregiving. Now, in certain uh, enlightened societies, like Australia, where men are um, uh, uh, supported, if they too contribute to the caregiving, 
and women are compensated in the caregiving, you see more men getting in, involved in this process. But this process is the glue of society. So when we think of just the numbers of people who are family carers uh, for people with dementia, with chronic medical problems, with chronic mental illness, with childhood disabilities, that number is somewhere between 40 and 50 million Americans. That means a lot of us are going to be involved with family care in the context of our lives. Are we prepared for this? Well, in certain ways, we're not. For example, our healthcare system is a poor one for long-term care. It doesn't provide uh, many of us with long-term care insurance. I had long-term care insurance because I had the financial wherewithal to pay for that for my wife and myself. But most Americans, the vast number of Americans, do not have long-term care insurance. That long-term care insurance in places like Japan, uh, um, Denmark, Germany, Holland, Finland, uh, uh, Sweden, uh, pays for a home health care aid. So in Japan, you automatically get a home health care aid if you need it for someone who's suffering from dementia. Uh, you know, we don't have that in the United States. So, um, uh, and, and, and in our society, we know that um, uh, one of the sources of bankruptcy is, uh, is serious disability and chronic illness. So literally preparing oneself for this to come means financially uh, being prepared. And then secondly, being emotionally and socially prepared. Um, how do we get emotionally prepared? I thought I was emotionally prepared. I was a, a professional caregiver, a psychiatrist, and a damn good one myself. And I had done research my entire career on just this topic. But I found I really wasn't emotionally prepared, that to be emotionally prepared means to have really participated much earlier on in the caregiving activities, which involve the caring for the home, the caring for the garden, the caring for pets, all sorts of care. Those who participate in that are in much better uh, straits. Um, and lastly, caregiving is about relationships. It's about relationships. The stronger the relationships, the, the, um, the more likely that caregiving will go well. The more fragmented, the more broken relationships, the more likely care, caregiving is going to be complicated and be, and be um, increasingly difficult. And so, you know, the very way we organize our relationships, the, re the way we can be present to um, our spouses and our kids and our parents, that's all preparation for what's going to come at some point. And I think when it comes, when, when, when care has to be given in, in that setting, um, we need uh, sorts of things that, again, I hadn't really thought about earlier in my career. First of all, we need social workers, because social workers are like navigators for a very complicated healthcare system. It's a, it's a system that even if you're a physician or a professor within it, 
is very difficult to understand when it comes down to the details of your own uh, family concerns. That's where uh, uh, access to a social worker can be enormously significant. We need access to paramedical uh, uh, people or, or the, the, um, the professions like physical therapy um, where, and visiting nurses who play such an important role in helping people to um, age in place, to be cared for at home. We also need to be much more attentive to what are the alternatives when you can't take care of, any, of someone you love any longer at home? In my case, I took care of Joan for 10 years. In the last nine months, as she be increasingly became paralyzed and as she became delirious, I found it extremely difficult to care for her, and I had to turn to an excellent cognitive care unit. Um, now, I hadn't, again, I, was, I found myself unprepared in this. I should have looked years in advance at assisted living facilities so that we could have decided maybe that was the first thing, uh, the first step toward uh, more institutional care. When I, when I had the time with my kids to look at my adult kids to look at nursing homes, we saw about 22 or 23 nursing homes in the Boston area, and 10 of them were truly appalling. I, I, again, I didn't realize how poor the average nursing home is with regard to the quality of its care. And, and all of these things are, can be better prepared for than they were in my case. So I wrote this book in part, I wrote the, the Soul of Care in part because it was the kind of book I would have liked to have read before I embarked on 10 years of such a troubling and difficult uh, journey. If you don't mind me asking one more question, Dr. Kleiman, you, you write in your book that care is a fundamental and universal feeling. You actually group it with other feelings such as pain, suffering, and joy. And do you, do you feel that way because of it, it really does represent our relationships with, with other human beings and how we, as a community, engage with each other? Yes, I, I, I think that's an, a very important point. Thank you for uh, leading me to it at the end. Um, I, th this is the difference between care and caregiving. So you can give care mechanically. You can give it uh, sort of in an institutional bureaucratic way without throwing yourself into it, without really being present fully. Um, when, you, when you're present fully, it's, it's caring as well as caregiving. It's the care in caregiving. That care, that taking on of cares, the worries about people, then caring for them, that is, I believe, a universal feeling that is as existential to our lives as any. And really, it's an elaboration of love. It's a, an elaboration of the love that we have for others. That's why I believe this is not just an emotion, but a moral emotion. It's an emotion that centers our life. That's why I use the term, the soul of care. I wanted to use the idea of soul as an inner feeling of value and 
uh, emotion tied together that sort of orients us, centers us. And I think that that's what care is about. It is a crucial part of who we are in relationship to others. And as such, it's about as universal as anything you'll find. Well, thank you very much for your time, Dr. Kleinman. Uh, and we will be posting the link to your book on our website as well. Thank you, and thanks for the interview. Good interview, and I enjoyed it very much. Please subscribe to Dementia Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. And rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Bashir Adin. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.